High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of February 8th. Coming up on today's show. Collapse OS. Retroarch eyes up FPGA. Games Master gets a reboot. And Lunark is giving me flashbacks. All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. So, Neil, post-apocalyptic themes in video games are more popular than ever these days. Whether it's the uh, nuclear variety like Fallout or a zombie outbreak of some kind like in The Last of Us, or even the neon post-apocalypse of uh, Cyberpunk 2077, I mean, that, that is a kind of post-apocalypse, right? Well, it depends mm. on if you want you know, some sort of robotic eye or not, I guess. Neil, what is it about these types of games that make them so popular? And are you a fan of the post-apocalypse? Well, it's hard to avoid, isn't it? It's certainly been on trend for a long time now, this, this theme. Um, and yes, I do like them. Uh, I especially like the post-apocalyptic survival games. Mm. A few years back, I was really addicted to a game called H1Z1. Um, it's your typical game, gather the resources, fight off the zombies, build a base on a, a huge map that spans many, many miles. And um, honestly, it wasn't a very good game. <laughs> but but within that game, I'd formed a really funny group of friends. And, um, you know, it was glitchy. It was, it was half-baked. It was half-finished. But it was the perfect setting for hanging out and socializing while fighting off other groups of people who were doing exactly the same. So, um, you know, and when I say fighting, I mean locking people in a room and laughing at them when they couldn't get out. You know, that, that, those kind of japes, <laughs> you know. Shenanigans, yeah. Yeah, shenanigans that you did as a group. And it was great fun. I had a lot mm. of fun. And uh, I think post-apocalyptic um, despair, especially, you know, where, where you don't know if you can even get enough water to survive that particular day, that cycle of the game. I think that's a really good mechanic which forces people to work together to survive or die. So, yeah, I do like them. I like those dystopian ones the best. How about you, John? Mm. Well, there there is a certain attraction, like you said, to the, the survival element of the dystopian future. But mm -hmm. uh, I've always thought that the idea of a future utopia was more interesting. I mean, anybody can picture a future where everybody goes crazy, the world goes to hell in a handbasket. But it takes more imagination to envision a world where progress is eternal and everyone's figured out a way to live in harmony and sort of what can happen to a society when that happens. I mean, that's why I think we have a lot more zombie movies than we do Star Trek type situations. But anyway, if the great apocalypse does come to pass, there is hope. Well, at least hope for a quick game of uh, solitaire as the nuclear radiation wastes you away. Uh, software engineer Virgil Dupross has been hard at work crafting what he sees as a possible solution to the computer post supply chain breakdown, and he calls it Collapse OS. Uh, so this is an operating system that he describes as something designed for resilience and self-replication. <laughs> self-replication sounds more like a virus than an OS, John. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't think of that before, but you're, you've got a point there. Uh, I've often described iOS to my friends in the same way. <laughs> so you, you may wonder, you may wonder what all this new operating system talk has to do with retro. And here it is. 
uh, Virgil has decided to base his OS on the Zilog Z80 processor. That's right, the classic chip found in the ZX Spectrum, the Amstrad CPC, and everybody's favorite, the Jupiter Ace. Now, this project raises a few questions. Why go with the Z80? Um, are there a big pile of Z80 chips around that I don't know about? Are the rotting corpses of Mega Drives going to outnumber early Piniums in the scrapyards of the future? What do you What do you think, Neil? What do you think about this choice of processor? Well, I'm pretty sure you can still buy Z80s from from Zilog, or at least you can buy what's called the EZ80 CPU, which is fully compatible with it, but it can run a lot faster. Um, it's also in some modern day calculators and things like that. So it's, you know, it's old, but it's not necessarily a CPU of the past. Mm. And um, for a very long time after we considered it old hat, it did continue to be used by the military, uh, even by NASA, because it was just so well documented as are so many of these old chips, you know, features and bugs, they're all documented. Its behavior is just completely understood they know exactly how it will behave in all of the different conditions that you might throw at it so um that's what you want that's what you want when lives depend on technology you want to know exactly how it's going to behave so if the world has collapsed and we have to pick a cpu to be dependent on while humanity is at risk then sure i'll take a z80 let's start stockpiling sinclair computers just to be on the safe side john <laughs> <laughs> way ahead of you, Neil. Way ahead of you. <laughs> I, I've got I've got a ton. And of course, you know, there's the question of why you not just repurpose a classic computer from the past to do your computing. Uh, you know, any pre-built computer is going to give you a bunch of functionality. You know, think about it. If you were going into a post-apocalyptic wasteland and which still somehow afforded you a steady source of power, what what do you think, Neil? Which classic micro would you take with you for the duration of your existence? So many to choose from, but, um, you know, mm. if you want to stick to classic micros, John, if you want to run your post-apocalyptic bunker security system on a three and a half megahertz Z80, then you go ahead. But um, Zilog's EZ80 can actually run at 150 megahertz when paired with fast enough RAM. So uh, good luck getting past my compound security drones. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll send you plenty of supplies for your Spectrum's dead flesh keyboard. <laughs> just just make sure that you age that dead flesh properly so everything is that nice gray color that's that's all I, that's all i ask but you know I, i'm not taking no zx spectrum with me to the apocalypse for me it's no question even though it's based on the clearly inferior moss 6502 i'd take the original commodore pet aside from its space age looks it's so big i'm almost certain i could either brain a man with it or i could crawl inside of it and use it as a sort of shelter if we're going to digress the conversation into computers as weapons, then I'll probably take an Acorn Electron. It's not a big looking machine, but uh, apparently the plastic case is made from the same stuff as riot shields that the police use. So uh, <laughs> I'll strap that wow. to my chest. <laughs> but uh, let's, let's just bring it round to actually using computers as computers and not body armor. Um, is there much information on, on these features that Collapse OS might give us? Well, I know I made a joke about Solitaire earlier, but Collapse OS is much more stripped down than that. What you basically get is a text editor, an assembly editor and compiler, and then the kernel itself. So if you're looking to play games or chat on the official 28 Days Later Discord channel, you're going to have to write your own software for all that stuff. But hey, I'm sure there will be plenty to choose from when the time comes. I mean, without the new season of Pottery Throwdown, what else are we going to do as a society? <laughs>
<laughs> so if you're curious about Collapse OS, check out the full story from Hackaday linked in our show notes. I have to ask you, John, do you have the, the UK pottery throwdown or do you have your own over there? We, we, it has not made its way here yet. I've only recently uh, heard okay. about the pottery throwdown. So I, yeah. I, I, thought, I thought I'd throw <laughs> that in there, but I am anticipating it. <laughs> So you're familiar with the crane man then? <laughs> yes, yes. I've, 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 I've seen the meme. <laughs> <laughs> this week in retro, subreddit user Starquake64 has submitted a story this week about RetroArch. Their keen eye has spotted that on the roadmap for this year, new hardware platforms are being targeted. RetroArch will be familiar to many listeners. It's an open source front end for emulators. And if you have a Raspberry Pi and you use RetroPie on it, then that pretty screen that lets you scroll through all of your emulators and all of your cores, that is RetroArch. So you know what it is if you've used RetroPie. Now, Libretto, who make it, have said that they're targeting Apple's M1 processor. So that's the new ARM CPU made by Apple for their latest laptops, desktops, and the Mac Mini. And something a bit more niche than the Apple's is the DE10 Nano is now going to be targeted. And that's a single board computer, which you may know as being at the heart of the Mr. Project. The team say that they're impressed with the performance they're seeing on the new Macs and everything that they've run on them has so far exceeded their expectations. They've got nearly 70 different system cores running on those Macs. Uh, with the new uh, M1 processor, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how fast it appears to be. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how performance stacks up against the emulation boxes that we have now that are all powered with Intel or ARM chips. But what's all this about porting it to the DE10, Neil? Mm-hmm. Well, th that's a slightly different story according to the roadmap. roadmap. So... On it, they say, our stated goal is for this platform to be all pervasive when it comes to being able to run it on as many different devices as possible. Giving people the choice to do with our hardware what they want is always our number one priority. As ever with our project, whatever the D10 nano port can be and will be is going to depend in large, uh, in large part on where the community takes it. That is the power of open source. Mm. So... The successful failure of the D10 is going to be really down to a community effort here, I think. Will they? Will the community think that it offers something over and above what they already have? Is the juice worth the squeeze, as they say? Time will tell, but at the very least, it will draw more attention to the D10, the Mister, and open source FPGA alternatives to those gorgeous but let's be honest very expensive products from analog systems that you know they make lovely fpga systems but they really are quite expensive so it's good that it's drawing attention to these things hopefully it will be a success john is retro arch your friend front end of choice or uh, do you like to launch game roms from the command prompt like you're hacking the pentagon well <laughs> you know before i answer that question let me let me ask you something neil if you're using an FPGA to do emulation through RetroArch, what's the point of having an FPGA? Because isn't the point of the FPGA to do simulation? And so if you're just throwing an emulator on top of that, aren't you defeating the purpose? Well, it's a front end. So it's effectively just launching the FPGA calls, isn't it? Oh, um, I see. So it's, it's not, not, it's not running the itself. emulators themselves. It's just the front end for the cores. That's where yeah, I, was, I, was, I was confused about that. Yeah, and it does layer other things on. Um, for example, it gives you control of adding, turning on things like scan lines and all of the options for your emulators. But essentially, it's a front end. Uh, 
Mr. The Mr. Project does have its own front end, mm-hmm. but you know, maybe this will just be a bit prettier. It will just be something people like more. Um, okay. yeah, yeah. It, it will come down to what the community thinks. That's true. That's fair enough. Well, you know, getting back to your question about my front end of choice, it really depends on what I'm doing. Uh, if I'm doing a live stream of a bunch of different games on different systems, you really can't go wrong with a PC front end called CoinOps Next. Uh, I highly recommend that one. Uh, but if you're just firing up a random game on a whim, uh, I don't usually bother with front ends at all. Uh, I find I can get into a game faster just by launching a dedicated emulator uh, and selecting the ROM I want. Of course, the ROM that I personally ripped from a cartridge myself that I own and going to town. Uh, I will say that one of the appealing things about the Mister is its ease of uh, PC emulation. Sometimes when I'm emulating a classic Mac or something more obscure like the FM Towns PC, uh, configurations can be a little hairy. Uh, what about you, Neil? What's your front end of choice? Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny with front ends, you tend to only research them when it's time to set one up when mm-hmm. you've got a new device, you know, or you've just got a new arcade cabinet and you want to get it all setting up nicely. I do tend to to lean towards RetroPie or RetroArch on my PC these days because it is such a mature product and there's so many people using it that getting support for it is really easy. And that's always key in these things. But um, in my mini gauntlet cabinet, which you may have seen, I'm still running a front end, which has been around for a long time, called Hyperspin. And that's sitting on Windows XP. That's how long ago I set up (laughs) our game cabinet. But, you know, it works. I never got around to upgrading it or changing it because it works. All I want to be able to do is turn that cabinet on, choose my game and play it. So why would I change it? You don't fix Uh, what's not broken. Absolutely. Exactly. And it took me weeks to set that thing up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe even months. So I have to use it. I hear you. <laughs> you know, um, I ran hyperspin on my main cabinet, also running Windows XP all the way up until a couple of years ago. And then the PC that was running it broke. And, uh, and only when I upgraded did I switch over to CoinOps Next. But I've got to confess that unlike my hyperspin setup, which just like you took me literally forever to, uh, to set up, uh, Amigo Aaron did all the heavy lifting on this one. He basically just gave me a hard drive and he's like, pop this in your machine. Uh, if you're interested in CoinOps Next, uh, then, you know, this is just, it's a, if, if you, you, a lot of people know about hyperspin, this is like hyperspin, but I think it's, it's a lot more user-friendly and it also has a lot more extensibility. Uh, check out this video that Aaron did on our Amigos retro gaming channel called coin ops next for dummies. He takes you through how to set it up and everything. It's a must watch if you're interested in getting your own setup cooking. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've not seen Hyperspin, or I'm guessing CoinOps Next, because I haven't looked into that one, the, the beauty of those ones is it's a very sort of multimedia rich front end. You get yeah. a lot of videos playing. And Animations and videos. It looks like your monitor like is exploding in front of your face. There's so much activity. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you again to Starquake64 for the story this week. Check out the link to libretto.com in the show notes to see that roadmap. Uh, and that's for quarters one and two. So who knows what RetroArch might bring us for the rest of the year. But it's a, it's a positive start for FPGA owners and Mac owners. Neil, if there was one thing I enjoyed almost as much as playing video games as a youth, it was watching TV. Now, I know a learned man such as yourself probably had no use for telly when you were young. You were studying the classics, but if you could pull yourself away from your studies to flip on the screen, Neil, what were some of your favorite programs uh, in those glorious days of your adolescence? 
Uh, oh yeah, studying the classics, John. I was studying <laughs> Pac-Man, Robotron, Outrun, all of the classics. Yeah, like I said, the classics. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you asking me favorite TV show about computers, or just TV shows in general? No, 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 just just TV shows in general. Oh, okay, okay, TV shows in general. Um, well, we got all the classic American shows that you'd probably know. You know, we got the Air Airwolf, A Team, Knight Rider, um, Chips. Do you remember Chips? Oh yeah, Eric Estrada, Men on Bikes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of those, and and all of their spin-off action figures. We got all of those over here. Um, the the soap opera that we all watched as kids was an Australian one called Neighbours. I don't know if you got that over there. That no, aired in we the didn't afternoon. get Neighbours, unfortunately. So, Okay, so you'd come home from school, uh, you'd put on the TV. We had a choice of four channels when I was a kid because there was this new one around, which was imaginatively called Channel 4. So, <laughs> so we now had four channels, John, imagine that. And um, you, you'd tune into a presenter showing all of the kids' programs, and then after that you'd get neighbours at, at the end of the kids' programs and just before the news, um, and that was really popular. That's all we'd talk about in school. What happened in Neighbours last night? Mm. Um did, did you have any, you know, of the zany kids presenters between TV shows in the US? I imagine you had a similar kind of presentation style for the kids shows. Um, yeah, we had people like Philip Schofield who presented from from the BBC studio broom cupboard. So this little <laughs> confined space as it was presented. I'm sure it was a massive studio, but it was presented as a broom cupboard and he had a, a puppet of a gopher. <laughs> that helped him to present. Did you have that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, aside from Mr. Rogers, who he probably deserves to be in whatever category is opposite of Zany, uh, we had a, a show on our local West Virginia NBC affiliate called Mr. Cartoon. Mr. Cartoon was an institution, Neil. Uh, his real name was Jewel Huffman, and he was sort of a kind of a cartoon DJ. So the show was filmed on a, on a stage with some bleachers on it, like you might find on a, a football pitch or something like that. And uh, every kid's dream was to one day appear on Mr. Cartoon because it was a local show. I mean, this was you know just right down right down the street, relatively speaking, from uh, where I lived. So uh, I believe Amigo Aaron was actually a guest on the show at one point, though I never had the honor. Um, <laughs> you know, it's one of the great disappointments of my life. Uh, the show ran forever. It it, it started in the fifties. Get the, it started in the 1950s. It ran every single weekday at 4 p.m. all the way up until, I believe, 1988. So almost a 40-year run of Mr. Cartoon. Now, I believe that that uh, Jewel Huffman was the second Mr. Cartoon. He took over in, uh, in the late 50s, but he was there for almost the entire run. And uh, Mr. Cartoon had a sidekick called Beeper. Uh, he he looked a lot like one of the banana splits. I think that if he were to exist today, there would be a lawsuit involved. <laughs> but uh, do you do you know who the banana splits are, Neil? Yes, we okay. did get the banana splits. Okay. Just want to make sure. Here, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and in between the the segments, in between the cartoons, the kids would play games. Uh, Mr. Cartoon would ask them questions. It was really a throwback to another era, since shows of this type were mostly popular in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, if you watch Captain, or, um, Mr. Cartoon, it looks like an old Captain Kangaroo show from the 50s. But in West Virginia, uh, we, we always tend to be a little uh, behind the rest of the, the country. So, you know, we, we didn't know and we didn't care. Uh, now, Neil, what about weekend programming? Were Saturday morning cartoons a thing in the UK? Yeah, we had Saturday morning cartoons. And I've seen, uh, I have seen a clip of Mr. Cartoon. I haven't watched much, much of it, but I must say, those kids look like they've had a lot of sugar pumped into them. They, they are amped. They oh, are yeah. For that <laughs> you, when you're on Mr. Cartoon, like I said, it's the dream. You're living the dream if you're on Mr. Cartoon. 
<laughs> yeah, on, on Saturday mornings, we, we had a show for kids which would go on for a few hours. Again, you'd have the presenters messing around, um, just doing silly things and quizzes and stuff between the cartoons. And we get cartoons like Super Ted and Thundercats. Mm -hmm. And then um, I actually, my favorite cartoons were on a weekday really early on Channel 4. So I'd get up before school, I don't know, about 6 a.m. they started. And we'd have things like Mysterious Cities of Gold or Jason the Wheeled Warriors or Pole Position. They'd all play really, really early in the morning for some reason. And I love them. I love them as much for the theme tunes as for the cartoons themselves. So those were great shows. Yeah. How about you, John? Yeah. Speaking of getting up early, I, I vividly recall getting up at something like five o'clock in the morning just to catch the Super <laughs> Mario Brothers Super Show. Because uh, for whatever reason, that was when our local TV station decided to air it. And I remember uh, my dad, who was trying to get a good night's sleep, you know, <laughs> coming downstairs and giving me a stern talking to for cranking up that theme song because I loved it. I don't remember watching a lot of live action programming when I was a kid. For me, I was all about cartoons. Um, Saturday mornings especially, they were a sacred time. You know how it is. You, you, this is your day where you can sleep in uh, Saturday morning and you're torn between you know getting a little extra shut eye or waking up, pounding down one or two boxes of Honey Nut Cheerios and watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the real Ghostbusters, and of course that eternal classic Camp Candy, the cartoon where John Candy had his own camp and he was a camp counselor. Did you get that one in the UK, Neil? We did not get that in the UK, no. <laughs> I don't think that that ran very long. Um, but of course, as a kid, the ultimate TV show would be one about video games. Uh, there was a video game show in the early to mid-80s called Starcade, which pitted adults and children against each other, uh, playing the hottest arcade games of the time. But when I was in my prime cartoon-watching years of the late 80s and early 90s, the initial popularity of that golden age of arcade games had faded, and Starcade had been gone for a long time. So I never watched that when it was new. But in 1992, a show premiered on the Nickelodeon network called Nick Arcade, which combined video game trivia, head-to-head -head high score challenges, and a final level that involved competitors, get this, Neil, actually going inside a video game. Yeah, Whoa. that's right. It was <laughs> mind-blowing. So, of course, they did this by incorporating uh, blue screen technology with interactive elements. Uh, this was the first show in America to do this, but I know that all of our UK listeners are now screaming, we did it first, we did it first, and you're right, you did do it first. <laughs> Nightmare had been doing that for a long, long time. Neil, were you a fan of Nightmare? Yeah, yeah, Nightmare was awesome. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a TV show game where you have a team of kids. One is designated as the adventurer who has to put a bucket on their head with, <laughs> with horns. <laughs> I'm not sure why. The reasons are never really explained. And this kid stands in a green or a blue screen room. And then the other kids on his team sit together and have to direct the bucket head kid through an adventure. So the room might be an entrance to a castle with a bridge and the team have to instruct the adventurers to, to say, take five steps forward, turn 90 degrees left or or whatever it is they need to do, jump. The, the adventurer just has to follow the orders of the team until they complete the quest or the adventurer dies. And, and all oh of the gosh. scenery in this, yeah, it was all computer generated. You'd have other live, live action actors would appear in there, sort of a, a temptress or something like that. A w wicked witch would come and try and lure the adventurer away. So, but because everything was computer generated, of course, it had my attention and, and it's very fondly remembered by a lot of people, that show.
yeah, I, I recently discovered Nightmare, and it is it's it's still quite amusing. I I, I enjoy watching it from time to time. But apart from Nick Arcade here in the states, there really wasn't any live action programming centered around video games that that I know of, at least, uh, unless you count those hokey live action bits of the Super Mario Show, which which really don't count. Now I know that that wasn't the case in England. You guys had a bunch of different shows that were like actual video game review shows, right? Well, yes, we did, but don't be under the impression that we had a lot of them. Um, you know, we've got some iconic ones, but we didn't have a lot of them. And any, absolutely any glimpse of a computer in a TV show back then, even for a split second, that was an exciting affirmation that the mainstream had actually acknowledged us and acknowledged our geeky hobby. You know, mm. computer users and gamers really didn't fit with the mainstream media's narrative. And I would argue that even today, they very, very rarely get it right. So, mm -hmm. but a couple of times here in the UK, they did. Um, I mean, going back to the 80s, we had BBC Micro Live, which were some of the programs which supported the Computer Literacy Project here in the UK. And I would describe that as being a little bit like the Computer Chronicles over in the US that you had. Mm -hmm. um, sure. Computer Chronicles being a show that I've only got to know because of YouTube in recent years. And um, I really enjoy going through the back catalogue of that. We also had Tomorrow's World. That was a show about future technology in general, so not really just about computers. So occasionally you'd get a glimpse of a, a new system or an innovative game that was up and coming. Things like virtual reality would be shown on there. But the real fun for gamers probably came in the form of a show called Bad Influence or a show called Games Master. Um, they, they didn't have the quiz show format that I've seen in Starcade over in the US, again, a show that I only saw because of YouTube. Uh, and it's worth checking out. If, if you're a UK listener, go and, go and have a listen, uh, a look at Starcade. It's good fun. Um, but our shows were a mixture of previews, reviews, and head-to-head -head gaming challenges presented in a way that was, was really on a level with us kids. You know, Even though the presenters, clearly looking back now, they didn't have a clue what they were talking about most <laughs> of the time. They at least focused on the games and the tech and they showed us enough of them to enjoy the show. So, you know, we would go on to get more shows later. We got a show called Bits at the end of the 90s. Um, and here's one you'll love, John. There was a show called Cyberzone. Uh, it was presented <laughs> by Craig Charles, who um, was in, uh, was it Lister? It was Lister in Red Dwarf. Okay. I don't know if you watch Red Dwarf. So he was the presenter. And um, it was in the early 90s, and it was a virtual reality puzzle survival game. So you were in a 3D world. You had two teams fighting it out against each other in this kind of puzzly death match, I guess you'd describe it. It was, a it was a weird one. And the players would stand on a treadmill and run to move in the virtual world and spin wheels to turn. It's, it didn't really work, but it was an interesting <laughs> one to look back on. But sometimes those sometimes those those ideas that didn't quite work are the most interesting ones to go back and look at just to, just to see that what they were trying to do the idea of a puzzly death match is uh yeah is pretty, yeah. yeah yeah and in vr you know it's really interesting to look back at vr in that period because that really wet our appetites for that technology and mm -hmm. then we had to wait you know 20 25 years for vr to really mature yeah. in a way that but we could it, afford in our minds it. at the time it was just over the horizon like you were like exactly. man next year exactly we're gonna get that. it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that so it's tantalizingly close mm. but yeah bad influence and games masters they are the ones that people would most fondly remember over here um so 
I'm glad that you have some fond memories of Games Master Neil because I have some good news. Uh, according to a write-up on VideoGamesChronicle.com, after a 23-year hiatus, Games Master is returning to the airwaves. That's right, they're bringing it back. Uh, as you may recall, Games Master originally ran on the imaginatively titled Channel 4, as you said, from 1992 to 1998. And it was the first British television series all about video games. So this was uh, originally hosted by a guy named Dominic Diamond, which is an awesome host name. Uh, and also featured Sir Patrick Moore, who I guess was an astronomer, which is pretty amazing. Uh, he, he could rock a monocle like nobody's business. I was, I was looking at some pictures of this guy. Uh, the show featured video game reviews as well as a challenge to compete for the Golden Joystick Trophy. So... What's new with the new edition of Games Master? Well, it's going to run over the course of three episodes, and it's going to feature celebrity competitors. This is a thing that happens in every TV show, it seems like. Uh, one of the five celebrities will be eliminated each week. Uh, the show will feature classic gaming as well as contemporary releases, so that's that's cool. Uh, I think it's a good move. People who aren't gamers or aren't retro gamers might tune in just to see their favorite celebrities or just to see them play new games and might get sucked into the world of retro in the process. Now, one of the ads featured for this program on Channel 4's website features none other than Patrick Stewart, but if he is going to be one of the first guests or even the host, that has not yet been revealed. Uh, it's also interesting that Future Publishing, the publishers of Retro Gamer Magazine, also owns the rights to Game Master, so uh, it would be neat to see some Retro Gamer influence there. Uh, what do you think about all this, Neil? Would you be down to watch another series of Games Master here in the 21st century? And as a fan of the original series like you are, what do you think they could do to improve upon that original formula? Hmm. Well, there's a lot to unwrap there. Um, uh, with um, Future Publishing, Games Master actually existed as a, a video games magazine long after mm. the show finished. Okay. A very popular okay. magazine. So it might have, I don't think it's still going. I'd have to check that, but it, it carried mm. on going for a very long time. Um, Patrick Stewart. Now, he appeared, his image appeared in um, some social media promoting the show, but then his image was removed. Oh. So I don't know if possibly that maybe he's in it or maybe there was a mix up. Has has somebody mixed up one Sir Patrick with another Sir Patrick <laughs> and just put a picture of the wrong Sir Patrick? I don't know. I don't know. Time will tell. But mm. there's certainly plenty of rumors going. It, and, it got um, people yeah. talking about it, which is the point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Sir Patrick Moore, I mean, he, he's sadly no longer with us, but a, a legend, uh, um, an astronomer. He presented a show called The Sky at Night from, I think, as far back as the 1950s. And oh, wow. I think I think I'm right in saying it's one of, if not the longest running TV show ever anywhere. It's still going mm. to this day. Um, very knowledgeable man. Not knowledgeable at all in the world of video games, but he played the character. He played the character of the games master perfectly. So, um, yeah, I hope we'll get to see a good show out of this. Unlike you, I am a little bit concerned about the celebrity aspect of it. I think there are enough gamers out there to, to, to give them a show without needing a gimmick to boost the audience. There are, there are gamers who are as thirsty now as they were in the 80s and 90s to see their hobby done justice without hoping a let's be honest c-list celebrity unless patrick stewart does turn up but i'm, I'm expecting c-list celebrities yeah you know you don't need to lean on them to bring their twitter followers and boost numbers it's not needed these days um 
There were celebrities on the original show, but that was usually just a small part of it. So you'd have a gaming challenge at the end of the show, that kind of thing. But the games were always the real star of the show. And um, I understand that there is an urge to change the format because, let's be honest, we can so easily these days go on Twitter or YouTube and see video games yet to be released and videos of them posted by the companies making them or reviews on day one. You know, as soon as they're out, people are putting them up as quickly as they can on YouTube. So it's really difficult for a TV show to compete with that in the modern day. But I think you can still do it. You just have to make sure you do it better. Um, mm. You know, and, and the challenges that featured on Games Master, they're more than relevant now than, than they ever were because we're in a world of esports and competitive gaming now. That's all so much more recognized now in the mainstream so i think they could really lean into the world of competitive gaming and not have to rely on celebrity competitions um, right. there's a balance hopefully they can find the balance so i think the audience is there i think the content exists to make a great show based on the original games master format with just a couple of nods to the world that we live in now my fear is that it's going to turn into Celebrity Love Island, and I really, really <laughs> hope it doesn't. I really yeah. hope it doesn't. But how about you, John? Are you going to give this one a watch? Sure. I mean, I you know, I'll, I'll watch anything. I have no life, Neil. You know that. <laughs> um, the, the, the producers have been very upfront in saying that this program will be on something they're calling Social First, which I guess means it will have a simultaneous or at least a very close release on uh, TV, YouTube, and you know whatever other online outlets they have. So as long as they don't lock U.S. viewers out with region restrictions, um, you know, as soon as this comes out, I'll check it out. Um, and of course, we want to thank subreddit user Control Alt Reese for suggesting this story to us on our subreddit. A new game that's caught the attention of Redditor Pajaco6502 this week is called Lunark. You can download and play in demo of it. Yes, John, a playable demo of a game. Remember when those were a thing? <laughs> <laughs> and it's on Steam, and it's glorious. Have you seen this, John? Oh, yeah. The retro world has been ablaze with the news of this one. It's it's really hard to avoid seeing it. Um, so talk us through it, Neil. What do, what do we have here with Lunark? Sure. Um, I would describe this as a love letter to games like Flashback, Prince of Persia, maybe a bit of rolling thunder or impossible mission in there. Um, but mostly flashback. You, you'll immediately see that influence on the game when you look at it. This is a game for modern systems. Of course, it's on Steam, but it's got a beautiful pixel art look combined with the smooth rotoscoped style animation of its influences. It's got gorgeous cutscenes and it's got a really nice sounding orchestral score. Kalari Games, Kalari, probably Calary, based on Caligri. Mm, mm, yeah, I'm guessing <laughs> Calorie Games based in Canada originally launched this as a Kickstarter where it raised just over 81,000 of its 70,000 Canadian dollar goal thanks to 2,824 backers, which is a lot of money. But actually, it's not really smashing it out of the park money. You know, that's still a small independent project as far as game development goes. Mm -hmm. But it's now getting a lot of exposure and love thanks to the demo that's out there. And I hope that when the full game is released, it will be a smash hit for them. And hopefully it will bring in lots of sales and lots more money to support future projects. Now, John Vinet, Vinet or Vine is the developer who worked for many years as a graphic designer and pixel artist. And, and that really does shine through. And he says the following on his Kickstarter page. 
I've designed Lunark as a homage to cinematic platformers while bringing modernity to a lot of the core aspects. The controls are responsive and intuitive and the progression system generous. The game is meant to feel fresh while being nostalgic. Lunark is also an adventure focused on delivering a thrilling narrative with explosive moments. And it certainly does, at least from what I've seen, it certainly does deliver that. If you're in any doubt, as to his inspirations, there's also a wonderful clip on um, his Kickstarter page of the game in which a Prince of Persia-style enemy draws his sword in an Indiana Jones style and the main character simply draws his laser gun and kills him in one shot. So uh, there's plenty of humour in this game too. Um, it just oozes character and humour and style. I, I love it and I hope it plays as good as it look, looks. Um, John, Another World, Flashback, Prince of Persia, these are all inspirations. Did you enjoy these kinds of games or, or do you dispute their classic status? Neil, I dispute, and I dispute strongly. <laughs> no, I, I'm just kidding. Th these are classic games. There's no question about it. Flashback and Prince of Persia are the most, some of the most iconic computer games of all time. Uh, I just happen to really dislike these kinds of games. Uh, I've never, you know, and maybe it's because I didn't grow up playing these games. Uh, I didn't play Prince of Persia until I was a, a grown person. I never played it as a kid, and I never even heard of Flashback uh, until we played it on the Amigos. So I, I've never gotten used to the controls in these games. I really don't like the way you're constantly having to creep forward, you know, to line up your jumps in a pixel-perfect way. Um, I hate the fact that almost everything in these types of games is based on trial and error rather than skill with a controller. I mean, you enter a scene, something happens, you die horribly, and you're like, okay, well, what do I have to do differently? It's th These games are, I mean, I don't think anybody would dispute that they're just as much puzzly games as they are platformer games. They're, in fact, they're puzzle platformers. So um, I, I like the idea of a more, um, I guess, you know, purely platforming game, the idea of having momentum, you know, with run speed and variable jump height. Uh, to me, that makes it more of a skill game than a trial and error game. Uh, with so many one-hit kills, these types of games are just more frustrating than fun for me. However, you know, they are beautiful. I actually think that Prince and Persia and Flashback are prime examples of, you know, what the, the genesis of the whole graphics over gameplay thing. Um, and I, I still haven't found the fun in Impossible Mission, Neil. I'm sorry. Get ready, uh, YouTube <laughs> commenters with, with your flames. But uh, to me, that game seems to be more remembered for that voice intro than the actual game itself. But of course, that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I will admit there is a certain trade-off when you're using those rotoscoped graphics between letting that flowing, those flowing sprites move and having full control of the character, but mm -hmm. not to the degree uh, you mentioned putting graphics over gameplay. You know, we're not talking to the degree of a Dragon's Lair game. Or oh, no, like that. not at all. Or, or even it's... Shadow of the Beast. I mean, these, these games do play well. It's just a different yeah. control system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think it's nice that gaming is now so diverse and accepting of all the different styles of art from over the decades and, and, and the mechanics that you might want to present in your game that something like this can exist in the modern day. You know, I remember after Flashback, there was a game called Fade to Black, which was the follow up to Flashback. And it wasn't a bad game at all at the, at the time, but because of the pressure in the industry to release it in 3d everything had to be in 3d this was um, 1995 i think it came out so there was that pressure to make it 3d and if you look back at it now with its tank controls and its low resolution textures you, you just can't enjoy it in the same way that you can enjoy old 2d games 
And I think now that that pressure is gone and independent developers can make games however they like, a game like this can be enjoyed now and it can be enjoyed for many, many years to come. So it's great that such a thing can exist, I think. The only slight negative I've come across is from one Kickstarter backer who reached out to me and expressed their disappointment that the campaign originally included a Spectrum Next port of the game. And if you look at the graphical style of this, yeah, it would look great on a Spectrum Next. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to see that. But they've pulled that from the Kickstarter now and they've, they've suggested that a Spectrum Next version will be a campaign of its own, which I can understand the disappointment. I've, I've taken that story at face value. I've not looked into it, but if true, you know, that would be a frustrating thing to see the goalposts moved if that's the reason why you've backed a Kickstarter. So a slight negative there. But if you're interested in Lunark, check out the link in the show notes and let us know what you think of the demo over on our subreddit. Now, John, I think it's time for our community question of the week. What's the question this week? This week, the question was, what was the most value for money you got from any video game? Now, of course, if you're interested in answering our questions of the week, head on over to the This Week in Retro subreddit page, and you'll see that that post for the week is sticking to the top. Now, one thing that I neglected to do, Neil, was put a little any limit on the, <laughs> the length of the posts, and a lot of people have been quite verbose in their stories. So what it's we're going to do is it's we're going to... Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. What we're going to do is this week, we're just going to read the user and their game. Uh, next week, we're going to put a stipulation in uh, saying please keep your answer to one or two sentences so we can expound upon that a little bit uh, and uh, but not make this an eight hour long podcast and of course if you want to write more uh, feel free to be as lengthy as you want uh, just sort of put that in a new paragraph so yeah we'll kick yeah. things off with Pajaco 6502 he says Thimbleweed Park is uh, his most uh, remembered game. I guess if we can we can put a couple sentences in there, uh, 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 we just won't read the whole story. He says he backed it on Kickstarter and he had to wait three years for it, but uh, but he said that that was the most value that he got. And he attended a launch event where he got to meet Ron Gilbert. I mean, that, oh. that's value for money right there in a yeah, game. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Bigfoot651 says, for me, it would be Lemmings on the Amiga. It was the first video game I ever completed. The same week, Amiga Format re released all the level codes. It took me hours to achieve them myself. <laughs> uh, Shishakali says, uh, it's got to be Doom and Doom 2. He says, playing the bejesus out of it, single player, learning how to make my own wads, signing up to a BBS just to play multiplayer over dial-up, my introduction into LAN networking. Scheichler says, Midnight Resistance on the C64. It came free in the Night Moves bundle with the computer, and I played it for hours every day. Great game. Mm. Critical Kale writes, Hands down, civilization on my A500. Nothing comes close to the amount of hours spent there, and I used to play EVE Online. Croc Cayman says, Pokemon Blue when it was originally released, completing the full Pokedex with my school friend who had bought Red, took 150 hours. Wow. Mm. Sybil66 says, uh, probably for me, Ultima 3 on my C64. Bought it There's secondhand. the Ultima reference. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Take a drink, is. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Bought it secondhand for about five pounds in the late 80s. Clara Dweller says, probably when I got Quake for Christmas, it cost my folks a chunk of change, but boy, did I milk everything out of that game. Hmm. The cake was no lie, writes, 
Elite for MSX started out on a pirated version, then bought it and continued as a pirate in the game for only 30 guilders. It took me more than a day of playtime to become Elite. Critical Kale is back with another answer. He says, <laughs> who else could navigate the high seas of the Caribbean without the map? Pirates, of course. And finally, our intrepid producer, Duncan Styles says, uh, for the 8-bits, it was Am's... Amsoft, sorry, Grand Prix for the 16-bit Gunship 2000 and for the console Burnout Paradise Rainbow Six and SSX Tricky. So, Great good choices. answers. Yeah, good answers one and all. So, Neil, what is next week's question of the week? Next week's question is a good one. It's, what was the worst video game you ever purchased? Now, how you define oh. worst is entirely up to you. Bend the rules answer however you see fit absolutely so uh as always if you'd like to answer that question it is uh the subreddit this week in retro and please keep your answer to one or two sentences for us to read it on the air thanks for listening to this week in retro join our show subreddit to contribute your favorite news stories and if you really enjoy our show then visit coffee.com forward slash this week in retro that's ko-fi.com forward slash this week in retro to put a tip in the jar help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice and subscribing to the this week in retro youtube channel we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech